You are listening to Vueltas y Revueltas, the cycling podcast at the Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Stage 15, today we are in El Barranco. Ver una llegada de la vuelta frente a la casa del Chava, qué, qué emoción provocaba. Eh, pues esta mañana me han empezado ya a mover un poquito las, las conciencias y entonces de Chava pues me han dejado ya un poquito tocado de las emociones. Lo grande que era él, lo grande que era él, pues hoy hemos recibido un homenaje de acorde con, con lo que era él y lo que se merecía el barraco. Ahora que se merecía mucho, se merece mucho, y entonces pues todo mi cariño para Chava siempre, y para todo el barraco y para todo el mundo. Whose voice was that we heard at the start? Daniel. Well, Richard, that was Victor Sastre, the father of 2008 Tour de France champion Carlos Sastre. Victor, a very important figure in cycling in these parts, and by these parts I mean El Barraco, where the Vuelta stage 15 was it? finished today um victor well he he obviously brought up his son carlos as a cyclist but he's also discovered and coached and mentored all sorts of um illustrious spanish riders over the last few decades um paco mancebo was another one and david navas there have been well there have been dozens of them that have made it into the upper amateur ranks and professional ranks and of course uh, Chava Jimenez, uh, who we talked about a lot yesterday, the late Chava Jimenez, the, the swashbuckling climber who tragically died in 2003. And, chaps, um, as we mentioned yesterday, the stage finished on the Calle um, Jose Maria Jimenez, um, the, the road named after him yesterday, and also where he formerly lived. So I'm currently sitting um, on, on a curb, um, unglamorously, uh, looking down the street on my right hand side is the house where El Chava lived, there's, a, there's an enormous poster hanging from the window today and on my left is the house where Carlos Sastre, who was uh, Chava Jimenez's um, brother-in-law, currently lives. So very much a family affair here. And there you heard Victor uh, talking to me after the finish today. He'd just been um, honoured on the stage after after Rafa Maika um, had got his prize for winning the stage. Um, Victor was talking there about what an, uh, an emotional day it had been for, for him right from this morning when there were sort of concerts and all sorts of other things going on in El Barraco. And um, well, he, he finished by saying that um, Chava will have his heart and El Barraco will have his heart for the rest of his life. So you're sitting on the curb outside Carlos Sastre's house. If you get moved on during the episode, do do keep the tape running, I saw, I saw him earlier, and I was sort of hoping that he might invite me for a drink. I have interviewed him various times in the past, but he was very much in demand today, as was his father, in fact, Victor. Although Victor did visit the press room earlier as well, and he was being, um, he was being a, a wonderfully generous host. He t- sort of took it upon himself to attend to all of the journalists. Uh, not surprisingly, because we were housed today, the press room was in the Victor Sastre sports hall. He was offering us all madrileño stew and and coffee and, and all sorts of other, of other local delicacies. Well, I mean, attending to all the journalists at the Vuelta will take about two and a half minutes, Daniel. <laughs> so uh, it's... <laughs> Uh, but that sounds very uh, convivial of him. Uh, I, I saw a race today as well, chaps. I saw the Grand Prix de la Somme, uh, my local race, won by a, 
British writer Tom Mazzoni. Do you want the tale of the Etap from that? No, I didn't think so. Um, before we do hear the tale of the Etapa from the Vuelta, um, a, a shout out at the front of the episode for press conference. We didn't do one last yesterday. We're going to try and do one tomorrow. I'm heading out to Spain tomorrow and should meet up with Daniel late afternoon. So we'll try and squeeze one in tomorrow evening. If you could send us your questions as an audio file, that would be appreciated. Email contact at thecyclingpodcast.com. Um, written questions are okay, but we much prefer audio questions. So do send them in. And if you have a question for one of our three audio diarists, we can try and get those to them as well. Um, so without further ado, Lionel, could you give us the tale of today's etapa, please? I can indeed, Richard. Yes, uh, stage 15. And, well, we saw a pretty well-matched, certainly for a long while, pursuit match between Rafael Maika and Stephen Krausweik on uh, the final climb well the run to the final climb the penultimate climb and the final climb it was a humdinger of ba- humdinger of a battle uh, they were separated by about a minute and a half for a long while um, and the gap wasn't going down or going up uh, until they reached the bottom of the final climb and that was when Rafael Maika who was out in front stretched away and uh, broke the spirit of Krauswijk's chase really um, a very impressive stage win for Micah. That gives UAE Team Emirates the Grand Tour Grand Slam. They join Alpacin and Bahrain as the uh, three teams that have won a stage of the Giro, the Tour and the Welter this season. Uh, there was, a, well, it was a big break, wasn't it? But there was a preliminary break that was pulled back in because it had Sepp Kuss and David De La Cruz in it, both dangerous on GC. Movistar and Cajarural, who had missed that break, did most of the chasing, along with Ante Marche, who have got the red jersey, of course. Uh, it took quite a while to catch them. And then there was this big counter move, Rafael Maika, uh, Van Gils and Fabio Aru, who were up the road together. Behind them, a very strong group. Michael Storer was in there, Wout Pauls, Carlos Verona, both of the Hamiltons who were in the race, Izaguirre and Krasweik, of course. For a while, Aru and Maika were ahead of a little chase group. And uh, Micah pushed on from there. And as I say, it was impressive the way he got his nose in front, opened the gap and pushed on. Krausreich perhaps left it a bit late to make his counter move or perhaps it just wasn't really on. Micah was just too strong. Uh, I think everyone else got caught on the run in. Some really impressive work by Anto Marche. They were doing a lot of work on the front of the peloton, really defending the red jersey and keeping odd Christian Eiking in red for another day. Must admit, that's a few days longer than I thought he would be in the red jersey, but he's looking very good going into the final week. Just on the uh, on the line, it was Micah ahead of Krausreich. Uh, Chris Hamilton was the only other survivor from the break. And then from the GC group, Adam Yates uh, attacked and gained a few seconds, 15 seconds, in fact, over the Eiking, Roglic and GC group. Uh, one of those days really where it was the pattern was set and we, we kind of watched this pursuit match between Micah and Krausreich, but really nothing was giving, was it? You are listening to Vueltas y Revueltas, the cycling podcast at the Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rights that matter? Never again. 
Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights, and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. Thanks very much indeed to our title sponsor, Super Sapiens. Grateful to them for their support. And we've been running a competition in conjunction with Super Sapiens, offering three months worth of the Super Sapiens devices to monitor your blood glucose levels and help you with your fueling in training and for competition. Um, now, we first ran this competition at the Giro d'Italia and we had three winners there, one of whom, Fiona Bell, got in touch afterwards sent us a lovely email um telling us how she'd used it what she got out of it and i spoke to her earlier today to find out a little bit more so my name's fiona bell i turned 60 in july and about a year ago i thought it would be a great idea to enter a triathlon which is called castled coast and goes from Windsor, or Dorney Lake. Uh, you swim in the lake there. You then cycle down to just short of Brighton. You then run up Ditchling Beacon down into Brighton and finish on the promenade in Brighton. So this seemed a, a, a really good idea. And cycling wasn't too much of a problem, but I needed to pick up the, the swimming and in particular running. And the problem with the running was I'd get to about running 14k. I in the end had to run 14 miles. Uh, I, I'd lose all energy, have to stop. Um, yeah, have something to eat. And then I, I could I could go on again. So I realised that clearly it was something to do with fueling. And so that was the reason why I entered the Super Sapiens competition, because I wanted to try and understand what was making that happen, particularly on runs. Uh, so, yeah, I was very, very uh, pleased and excited to win the competition so that I could then start monitoring my glucose and uh, try to identify the sort of things that were going to create problems and try and even it out. That was Fiona Bell, one of our competition winners from the Giro d'Italia, um, who is well has enjoyed uh, what she's learned from Super Sapiens. If you would like to stand a chance of winning three months' worth of Super Sapiens devices, um, go to the cyclingpodcast.com and you'll see how to enter the competition. You basically submit 60 seconds or less of audio telling us how and why you would use your Super Sapiens the stage, I mean, we'll get on to the stage in a second, but there's not another fight breaking out there, is there, Daniel? Three nights in a row? I hear raised there voices. There raised voices in Spain, but I'm actually, I've, I've moved slightly, I'm now outside the anti-doping wagon, um, and I think Rafael Micah might still be in there. Uh, still a few journalists hanging around for someone, not sure exactly who it is, but I think it might be Micah, so we might, we might get a flyby from the stage winner any moment. I'd rather... Uh, a dehydrated uh, Raphael Micah won the stage today then um, because it's a good couple of hours after after he did when it was an impressive effort from him wasn't it uh, we'll get on to the, the GC implications a bit later but um, I, I suppose the 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 stage perhaps didn't deliver what we hoped it might in terms of a, the a weekend didn't battle. really deliver did it Rich? no the, the, we, the weekend did not deliver but I, again as Lionel said in the tale of the etapa it was it was a there was there was interest in the stage and particularly seeing two um two big riders Micah and Kreuzweg um in, in this pursuit match that Kreuzweg didn't really he didn't really make any dent in Micah's lead at all 
I suppose the surprise was that Kreuzwick was in that position at all and going for a stage win when he's such an important uh, teammate of Primoz Roglic. Well, should we see, chaps, if he shed any light on that when we spoke to a few reporters, me included, after the finish? It was really difficult to uh, to be in the break, actually, and uh, also behind him uh, was always uh, not really uh, a good group working together. So the only thing I could try is to to, to go by myself, but uh, it was already from the beginning of the stage really hard and. Uh, I could come a little bit closer in the beginning, but I also knew I had to settle myself in a decent pace because I, uh, I only could hope uh, he was going to crack in, uh, in some way. And uh, uh, unfortunately uh, for me, he didn't. And uh, I couldn't catch him anymore. You know, uh, it's a little bit also like in the tour when bigger breaks are going. And uh, Primus is always in support with the guys uh, around him, with Sepp, Kuhn, some uh, on the climbs. If, uh, if it's really uh, necessary, I could always drop back uh, like we did in the tour, and uh, that's also uh, yeah a bit of the team we how we work. Uh, they give me the, the the space and the freedom to today to go for the stage, and if it was really necessary, uh, I would uh, drop back and uh, help Primus. Uh, actually, right from the start, uh, when Sepp was in the break and uh, on the flat part, and never was going uh, below 50, and then on the climbs, it was also uh, a crazy craziness all around and. Uh, yeah, it was a good day uh, to finish the second week. So there you go, chaps. I think Jumbo Visma had pretty clear ideas about today's stage and they were fairly confident that it wouldn't it wouldn't be a particularly aggressive one uh, on the GC front. And well, it shows what confidence they they have and, and also what confidence it, it always brings to have a full team at this stage of the world. And, and in stark contrast to the Tour de France, really, isn't it? Because not only do they have the full complement of riders, but as far as I know, they don't have anyone suffering with crashes, illnesses, injuries. And, uh, well, it was the walking wounded at the Tour de France, wasn't it? That said, chaps, it was, well, it was good to see Stephen Kreiswijk up there and clearly riding well again. Um, I had a a uh, good chat with him earlier in the Vuelta um, uh, I think it was last weekend actually and just talked to him about well he'd struggled to find confidence and momentum this year and I think he's found it a frustrating year and you know as as the months have gone by as the last couple of years have gone by I think people have, have stopped really considering him as one of one of Jumbo Visma's leaders options as a, a GC rider and he's sort of well he, he's slowly sliding into the role of uh, Domestique Deluxe isn't he um, you know someone pointed out today that his last race well I remember it because I was there was I think seven years ago at the Arctic race of Norway he's not a prolific winner his last win yeah 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 um, it's, it's, it's amazing how rapidly this happens doesn't it I mean just in January when we went out for the Yumbo Visma camp they were they were still talking about the the, the, the Jumbo Visma trident at the tour of Kreuzweg, Demula and Roglic and, and they weren't all quite on an even footing but certainly Kreuzweg was in that in that sort of company um, and he was somebody who he's really been a talisman for that team hasn't he? He, he they call him the Swiss watch because he's so reliable and I think this, this recent um, inconsistency will probably have rattled him quite a lot um, so if he's if he's feeling and riding better that that could be a a real um 
a real strength for Roglic in this final week, I guess, as well as for Kreuzweg himself. Yeah, I mean, since he finished third in the 2019 Tour de France, he's ridden three Grand Tours and hasn't finished any of them. Um, one Welter, one Giro, one Tour, this year's Tour, of course. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he's, he's been solid today, but um, out in, well, not quite out in front, but out chasing Rafael Maika, I mean, a, a tough tough man to chase and a, and a pretty fruitless chase it must have been pretty um, dispiriting just to if he was getting time checks just to know that he wasn't eating into Micah's advantage at all um, for a long long while I mean it was quite remarkable how steady the time gap uh, certainly that we had on the TV screen was um, was holding and uh, perhaps he'd given up the um, hope of catching Micah when they got to the bottom of the final climb and, and because that was where the gap started to go out a bit, wasn't it? I talked about Kreiswijk possibly or seeming to or in some people's opinion semi-retiring into the role of domestique but or super domestique but in a way I guess that's what people thought when Micah signed for UAE. He was sort of nominally notionally signed as a as someone to help Tadej Pogacar which he did in the Tour de France although he crashed he crashed early on and I think he was he was uh, quite sort of hamstrung by injuries for the first half of the tour at least but um, I, I forget how young he is um, you know if you'd asked me this morning how old was Rafael Mike I'd probably have said 33 34 but in fact he's only 31 so he's got a lot of career still left ahead of him but it's been a curious career really hasn't it because you know he's won these these big mountain stages in prestigious races Tour de France um, the, the, he's won in the Vuelta before hasn't he Yes, he has, yeah. 2017. Yeah. His last win, in fact, was uh, a stage in the 2017 Welter. Well, there you go. And, and the two um, polka dot jerseys in the Tour de France. And I was just thinking who he reminds me of, this style of, of victory, this style of riding. He sort of reminds me of, uh, of Richard Veronk, dare I say, in the last half of his career. You know, still thought of as, as one of the elite climbers. But actually, if you analyse his victories... Um, they usually came as a result of extremely long breakaways and very aggressive riding, but in, in a sort of context removed from the GC battle and removed from, you know, the best climbers in the bunch, duking it out on the final climb. When he was away, it was he and Aru. It just brought back memories of the 2015 Welter, which, of course, Aru won. But that was Micah's kind of big breakthrough, wasn't it? Because he finished on the podium in, in that Welter. And as you say, Daniel, though, the, the, the pattern of Micah's Grand Tour stage wins has been on these sorts of mountain stages where the breaks go and the the GC battle to some extent is sort of neutralised. I remember he won a couple of stages in 2014 in a similar fashion and um, won in the Pyrenees in 2015 in the Tour de France. Um, so this was kind of uh, fertile ground for Micah and it was imp it was very impressive to you know there was some horsepower in that break wasn't there I mean uh, our tip for the for a third stage when Michael Storer was in there um, but he didn't really get a look in Micah took it by the scruff of the neck and and really uh, made the made the win happen the the tweet the tweet Lionel it was it was saved in my drafts um, it was to paraphrase what Gary Lineker once said about football and the Germans and penalties. It was something along the lines of well, bike racing is, is a bunch of guys riding their bikes for 200 kilometres and Michael Storer winning at the end. Um, but alas. Or, or Primoz Roglic hoovering up bonus seconds. There you go. He hasn't been doing that. And you, you talked about this, this stage battle happening outside the 
the context of the GC Marathon, they were two very different things today. You've spoken a lot, Daniel, about how you like stages and the battle for stages to have some some connection to the the GC battle or the race to have some um, some implications and, and today and yesterday have have not had that you know they've been impressive wins by Bardet and Mike and who are both very good riders but th- those have been divorced from the the real GC battle of which there hasn't really been one however however you seem confident Daniel that there are cracks in Roglic's armory I'm going out there tomorrow for a second opinion on this um, but you, you think you I, think there are maybe one or two signs I, I wasn't rich but then I heard from I spoke to Jack Haig this morning and well first of all Jack Haig gave me the strong impression that Bahrain Victorious were going to light it up today um, that they were going to go in his words full bananas um, he, he didn't I pref- say I prefer that he, to he, full gas. Can we have that instead yes. of full gas? Yeah. Yes. Full bananas. Yeah. So um, he he gave us well, he certainly gave us a few clues that pointed in that direction. But then I asked him about yesterday and whether Primoz Roglic's reluctance to attack was may- maybe an indication that he was just trying to save himself for the last week and that in fact he had plenty under the hood. We'll hear what Jack Haig said now and then we'll get a second opinion this morning. I got a second opinion for Egan Bernal on what he saw from Roglic yesterday. We've seen Primoz in a couple of these mountain stages really, well, he looks as though he's riding quite conservative, but then when he's had to close a gap, he's just gone like, like a motorbike. Um, is that the correct interpretation that he's just sort of, well, he's keeping a bit under his hat for, for when he needs it, but, but he's got plenty there, he's got plenty of, of beans. I had the exact same opinion until yesterday. I expected that last 500 meters when Sepp pulled off and Primoz sort of started winding it up that it was going to be much harder than it was because he has that typical 30 second burst of speed which is ridiculous and no one follows. But I really saw him fading quite a bit in the last 100 meters to the line. But we'll see. It could be just his legs on that day and that's what he wanted to show us and maybe he had a lot more in the tank. But uh, it will be interesting to see how it all plays out because Enric had no problem following him. I suffered a little bit and Bernal helped close the gap there, but we were coming up uh, in the final 100 metres there. I think he was uh, really strong because actually he dropped a uh, high. So he was, he was uh, strong. Uh, the thing is, was that uh, it was like really hard headwind. So if you are in the, in the, in the wheels, it's, it's easier to, to, to follow. But, uh, I think uh, Roglic is still being uh, the, the strongest in, in the race. Well, Jack Haig there, he's been trash-talking Movistar, now he's trash-talking Primoz Roglic, uh, which we, we appreciate. Um, uh, maybe, that's, maybe that's going a bit too far. But it's like one of the great <laughs> rap battles, trash-talking battles of the, the 1990s. It's like Nas versus Just, Jay-Z. It is just like that. He, um, but we appreciate his his candidness, his honesty. Um, he says he says what he what he sees, doesn't he? And do you know um, what, Jack Higg? Do you know what, chaps? Uh, me in my naivety, my ignorance of bike racing, I I'm a big subscriber as well to the, what you see in the last 300 meters, 400 meters of mountain stages, often being quite significant. 
Um, you know, when you see guys just sort of flop over the line, as opposed to mm. someone who can who can drop their fellow, you know, GC contenders in the last 500 meters of a stage, I, I always think that that well, most of the time that can be quite indicative of a of a larger trend. So you are you are of this persuasion then? Daniel, well, well, I that, was that, today that, as well. I was watching Primoz Roglic closely when Adam Yates attacked. And, and just generally on that final climb, which wasn't a steep final climb at all, um, the, the average gradient was about 3.8%. But obviously it comes at the end of two mountain stages, a hot two weeks, um, a long stage today. But I, I was surprised that Roglic wasn't closer to the front of that bunch. And that made so me think that maybe, maybe Haig was onto something. Fun, fun Roggy could be like Fun Bobby when he came off the booze. Then, well, the, well this, the, the, there's been no Fun Rog over the past couple of days because he's not. Well, he, I, I tell a lie. Actually, he was in the mix zone today briefly, and he he fielded a couple of questions from our Danish colleagues, and then he got another question about Movistar, and um, he, he was clearly playing, paying close attention to the question, listening intently, and then at the end of the question just at the, the sort of point on the question mark he said I've got to go and rode off because <laughs> he's been watching the Netflix series on your recommendation that's what he's been doing maybe that's why he's um, he's um, fading a bit he's tired he's been doing late nights watching catching up on seasons one and two and more on that later by the way um, well I mean we've got to hold on to something haven't we we've got to uh, you know the the thing is that the writers and Bernal, who knows Bernal is is a lot more diplomatic than than Jack Haig. Um, who knows what he really thinks? And it was good to see Adam Yates have a have a go today and test him. Um, didn't see anything from Movistar today, but you know those other writers will know, won't they? They'll have a good sense of whether Roglic is in the the sort of form that we've seen him in before, or whether there are questions around also a couple, he's of, a couple of things that jack haig has said over the last few days has well have suggested to me that he knows enric mass both as a person and as a rider quite well and he was quite specific when he talked about mass yesterday about how easily mass had closed the gap or looked as though he he was riding on primos roglic's wheel yesterday um, so again, I think there might be there might be some truth, some clues, some pointers in some of what um, Jack Haig is saying. I said there was no daily rog today, chaps, or there was no fun rog in the mix zone, hence no daily rog. But in fact, there was one, or there will be one, supplied by uh, a different correspondent on this occasion, another rider, um, unexpectedly. Um, Ryan Taramai, the former Red Jersey, volunteered an opinion of sorts on Primoz Roglic after the finish today. You can see any weakness of this guy. No, but we speak uh, often every day and uh, make every day some joke. And I, I quite like him. Everybody likes him. He's, he's a nice, nice leader. Well, Ryan seems to think that it's the same old Rog, Robocop Rog, um, unbeatable, bulletproof. Um, impervious well Taramai um, is is part of a team that uh, is looking increasingly impressive isn't he I mean his his teammate Odd Christian Iking is still in the red jersey I think we expected him to perhaps relinquish that over the weekend he, he hasn't he hasn't actually lost any time at all has he um, 
He's in a really strong position. He had lots of teammates around him at the end. I don't know if anyone's told Louis Mankies that they've got the red jersey in the team, but um, apart oh, from... He's apart just from doing the, a bit of marking again. He's just, you yeah, know, sorry. paying yeah. attention at the front. <laughs> yeah, no, apart... <laughs> apart Mankies, and in the long term, Mankies is riding a good, solid race, is, 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 which is what Louis Mankies does when he's on form. And, you know, in the end, he could be their best place rider on GC or not, because... Um, odd Christian Iking looks looks really good and again today looked really good and, and we see this time and time again don't we that a team in that position finds strength that you didn't think they had um, and uh, who would have thought that going into the final week of the Vuelta Antermarche Wante Gobert would be leading the uh, the Vuelta and riding in defence of the red jersey like one of the the really big teams question for you chaps is Guillaume Martin going to wear the red jersey at all in this Vuelta España well I think he wears he's... a red jersey every day Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> he does wear a coffee this red jersey um, I, well he if it doesn't happen at Lagos de Covadonga I don't think it will happen will it I think that's his that's his only chance I think he'll slip down well, in, and he, in hasn't order got, for that, he hasn't got a lot of time on Roglic and the others, has he, really? No. Yeah, in order for that to happen, he would have to lose, what, less than... Well, it's around a minute to Roglic, isn't it? Uh, the Lagos de Covadonga, which will be... Tough. Well, in fact, it's, it's less than that. It's, it's, it's 40 seconds, yeah. 40 seconds, yeah, which is going to be really tough. Um, part of me thinks it's, it's almost more likely that odd Christian Eiking will keep the jersey at Lagos de Covadonga. I think that's unlikely as well, but p- possibly... More. Yeah, it makes you wonder what Cofidis were, were thinking. Really, were they were they just relying on Iking cracking? I, I guess they were, because I mean they did try to unseat him a little bit. Martin went up the road very briefly and 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 you know pinched a was well, tiny bit of uh, of time back, didn't he? Fifth, four seconds, I think it was yesterday. But um, yeah, no, th- th- you would have thought that they would have tried to put him under a bit more pressure but they haven't well they have got riders to do it but Harada was in the break um, you know so you know they've not really sort of I think well they've relied on Iking cracking rather than seizing what would looks like a great opportunity to lead the race if only for a, a day or two and a, a consensus seems to have emerged or be emerging on odd Christian Iking among those who know him. And of course, Guillaume Martin was his teammate at Wanty Group Gobert. So he knows him. And in fact, he, he said this, Guillaume Martin himself this morning, that um, when odd Christian Iking is hot, he's Carolina Reaper hot. Um, he, he's, he's very streaky, very up and down. But when he's riding well, he's really good. Um, on on most terrains and even on fairly big climbs as we saw yesterday Um, he's a curious character and and more is emerging every day that he's in the red jersey um, odd Christian Iking but remains a bit of an enigma that was only that was only reinforced um, this evening in fact by one of his teammates Ryan Taramai Um, I asked Ryan Taramai whether he was surprised by odd Christian Iking um, at this world and this is what he said Right, Odd is surprising us a little bit with how long he's holding on, but is he surprising you guys? Not really, because uh, I know Odd. He's a really strange guy. <laughs> one, one day he's down, another day he's up, but uh, I already see him make uh, really impressive things. And when he took jersey, we joke with each other that it's a long time with the team, but nobody knows his limits. I don't know actually what to ex- expect. 
how long he can go with it, like that. You say he's a really strange guy. You mean on the bike, or is he a bit strange off it as well? With a name like Odd, I don't know. Yeah, I mean performance. Uh, maybe it's on the head, and uh, you know we have everybody own problems in our lives and uh, yeah when I met him in the uh, worst part of the year he had really different ideas how to train today then he had another day next day another idea next day and after the third day completely different idea like to try things but uh, maybe he's only ready now he missed self-confidence a lot maybe Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the Vuelta España. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science and Sport for their support of the cycling podcast. If you want 25% off all your Science and Sport products, go to scienceandsport.com and at the checkout, enter the code SISCP25. SISCP25. Well, we heard from Ryan Taramai at the end of the last part talking about Odd Christian Iking. Very, very interesting. Odd is a really strange guy, he said at one point. He meant in terms of his performances, up and down performances on the bike. But yeah, it's fascinating. And he's clearly hot at the moment, Odd Christian Iking. Um, maybe we'll find out a bit more about him over the coming days because he could still be, uh, uh, he could still have the red jersey for a bit longer the way he's going. Who knows? Daniel, um, you spoke at the start to Eusebio Unzue, the man who's been in charge at Movistar for over 40 years, right from the start, um, through its various iterations. Um, such a fixture of Spanish cycling, of world cycling, I suppose. And you were granted an audience with Unzue at the start. I was, Rich. We missed each other yesterday, as explained in last night's episode, because Eusebio had an appointment with some kind of Secretary of State or Minister, or Spanish Government Minister, and um, yeah, they took precedence over the cycling podcast, um, slightly mystifyingly from our point of view. But Eusebio, well, he's always uh, a, a very avuncular and engaging talker, and he was in good form this morning. I expected him to be pretty happy with the way things were going um, with Movistar, um, having two riders, Enric Mas and uh, Superman Lopez, poised really on general classification. So second and third in what we, we're regarding as the, the virtual general classification, just, just perched on Primoz Roglic's shoulder. So we started off, um, Eusebio and I, just establishing whether he was indeed satisfied with Movistar's performance so far. Bueno, te diría insatisfechos en cuanto no haber podido eh, la tranquilidad que te da ganar una etapa. We're not completely satisfied in the sense that a stage win allows you to relax a bit. We're also unhappy to have lost two men as important as Alejandro and Jacobs. Alejandro would have been absolutely key on these days in the mountains in particular. I'm also not satisfied that it could ordinarily have been a really hard vuelta with a few stages where the wind was supposed to blow and didn't. We're pretty close to the lead, I'd say in inverted commas, also because as yet Roglic hasn't caught us out in the way he's done in the past, taking bonus seconds, causing little splits, getting 15 seconds here, 20 there. He's done relatively little damage on that front so far, so we're pretty happy we're not further away. But let's also not kid ourselves. He's the guy in the strongest position with a full team and no pressing need to gain any more time because the time trial plays in his favour. So we're going to have to make up some ground somewhere. Fortunately, we've got Enrique, who's improved greatly over the last year. 
He's very meticulous, attentive to small details, and as he absorbs more of that, he gets better on the bike. I also think certain riders' bodies only fully mature at 25 or 26, and it's from that point that they enter their best years. Now we've got a group of these precocious talents who are already in full bloom at age 19 or 20, but another group whose growth curve is more gradual. I think Eric is in the latter group, and that his time, his most fertile age, is about to begin. Well, chaps, I was, I was like surprised um, by Eusebio's answer there, mentioning that the team hadn't had a stage win, and also pointing out these these stages particularly in the first week wasn't it when I think a lot of people expected the wind to blow it didn't and we mentioned the fact that they had picked uh, Johan Jacobs in the team specifically we thought for those stages um, maybe trying to turn them to their advantage rather than the, the disadvantage they've traditionally had in those conditions um, but you know on the other hand Eusebio talked about Roglic not having picked up too much time in, in, in bonuses and, and other those little sort of fiddly little splits that he's taken advantage of before. So uh, I, think he, I think he was sort of giving his team about 6 out of 10, would you say, listening to that? Yeah, but I thought it was interesting what he said about mass as well and, and the point he made about uh, young uh, riders. Um, the, there's a lot of... A lot of uh, uh, a lot of expectation on very very young riders to perform well almost instantly and and he thinks there's another category of riders riders who may sometimes be overlooked in the in the current sort of climate and with this current trend um who are slow burners who develop more gradually and it, i said this a couple of nights the podcast thing hamas is exactly that kind of rider it seems his his progress has been pretty incremental year on year but i would say that the mass here at the vuelta is the best he's ever looked and even even better than the mass who, who finished second of wealth in 2018 um so that was an interesting point and obviously again he'll know he'll he'll see the improvements in, in mass year on year and he could he could still emerge as the guy um to lead that lead that team fill the fill the big shoes of alejandro valverde well, just as a counterpoint to that, Rich, are Movistar guilty of, of something that the French teams have done over the last 15, 20 years? And we've talked about recently, i.e. they've not blooded their, their young aspiring leaders early enough and they've left them too much time to develop. You know, they've not thrown them into the mix at uh, 21, 22. I mean, I mentioned a few weeks ago this column in Mundo Deportivo, which was very critical of Movistar, saying that the problem with Movistar at the Vuelta is that they should be using this race to, you know, to, to, to sort of groom their next leader, the heir to Valverde's throne. And what do they do? They, they generally come with their A-team because they've had disappointments mm. at the Tour de France and they're trying to, you know, salvage their season. I don't know. They've got, if you look at their roster, you know, they've got an awful lot of riders who, who have not never, who have not ridden a Grand Tour this year. You know, they do tend to rely very heavily on a, on a core of riders, you know, your Ervites and um, obviously Valverde, Verona, um, but there, there are a lot of guys there who've not, Erviti I mentioned already, I think, but a lot, a lot of guys there have not ridden a Grand Tour at all this year, um, which is strange. And Daniel, you had to ask uh, Unzue about the two series Movistar uh, Netflix documentary, um, The Least Expected Day is the 
English uh, title, which which is a title I think that dates back to the the Giro in uh, 2019 that they won. Of course, Richard Carapaz. Um, and it, it, I mean, it, we talk about this series a lot because it's it's it offered such insights into the team, and it did show the team warts and all. Um, well, you ask Unzui about that because certainly we know from other people on the team that there are there were episodes. Um, incidents that were shown that they perhaps would have preferred not to have been shown. Yeah, and we were curious, weren't we? We've heard from the director, Mark Pons, about well, the process that led to this film being made and, and you know, the editing process and the freedom that Movistar and the, the team gave the, the film crew to, to really put in what they wanted and create the story that they wanted. And we, we've often asked ourselves whether Eusebio Unzue, the top man, was was happy with the way the film came out and and happy that it did show all of those warts um so that's what i asked him this morning primero eh, obedecía también a un cierto deseo de there was a desire to do it on Telefonica, the parent company of Movistar's part, because they thought it would be interesting for our fans. And I can tell you that those fans did indeed love it. We've had so many messages thanking us for doing it. But of course it's also true that if you let someone into your kitchen to see how you cook their food, they also see things that could be improved, difficult moments, tension between members of the team. But that's all part of the source. All we did was lift the lid on our saucepan. They saw that maybe sometimes we mess up, that we're human, but that sometimes we also get it right. And we saw that people appreciated this. You also have to consider that it took us a while to get used to the cameras being there. Sometimes you act or express yourself a bit differently. But anyway, it was a great experience that's been really interesting for Telefonica and the people who suggested it. For us, it brought more positives than negatives, in my opinion. It's also a good advert for our sport, I think. Of course, there were things that we would rather they edited out, but that was also part of why people liked it. It's also the point of a fly-on-the-wall documentary to show the things that the protagonists don't want to be seen. I think we had to still have to make the effort to understand that and look beyond ourselves. On a general level, I think it was a good idea and that we'll see more and more of these things. Also because they put the sport in perspective and help people to understand the hard times we go through. People have said to me they've watched season one four times and then season two four times as well. That's a pleasant surprise. And these people aren't big cycling fans. Like I said, I know there were scenes that you'll have enjoyed and I won't, but I've tried not to get hung up on these. History is full of good moments, bad moments, fantastic moments and less fantastic moments. But that's also sport. Y la historia es así, con cosas, detalles buenos, malos, eh, brillantes y otras veces menos brillantes. Pero bueno, es el deporte. I thought that was very fair from Eusebio Chaps. What do you think? Um, I mean, I was trying to pin him down this morning on particular scenes that they hadn't liked. Um, you know, particular conflicts, particular riders that came out of it badly or direct sportives. We've already discussed the the change of personnel in the team car at this Vuelta a España with Pachi Vila taking the place of Jose Luis uh, Arieta and and you know there's been some speculation about whether the documentary played a, a role in that but um, Eusebio was his usual sort of diplomatic self but at the same time you know sort of admitted that the the, the team has to has to suck up some of and what was shown and, and some of people's opinions in the in the name of 
um, showing what professional cycling is really like and, and creating a product in this case the, the film that was that, that is likely to, to draw a new audience and appeal to a new audience of, of would-be cycling fans yeah he made that point that you know that, I mean he's he's been around for so long that you don't imagine that you know any of the reaction to the the the, the documentaries or anything that's in it would really rattle him too much I love his I love his line about history is full of good moments bad moments fantastic moments and less fantastic moments that pretty much sums it up um he he's um he, he comes across as this avuncular laid-back sort of fella that's the impression that you you get and i don't imagine that he was too rattled by anything in the documentary or any of the reaction to it and 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 i thought he made a good point if you look at the bigger picture um it does offer it did offer fantastic insights into the team it did offer us the the, the viewers a priv- privileged access inside the team and he thinks other teams will do it. and and i guess we we hope they do Lionel, have you led us into your kitchen and um, we were able to lift up the <laughs> lid of the saucepan? Would we be alarmed? Um, well, I think a funny point, actually, because uh, in our 1101 cappuccino this week, uh, well, over the course of the Welter, I've been putting some, some recipes in. Um, did, did the paella recipe this week, or paella recipe this week, or more to the point, arroz con cosas, rice with things. And I think, you know, when you do open open up, I've had a couple of messages saying that the recipe's all wrong and the wrong things are in it and the stock should go in first and the, the rice should go in second. Um, and I think that, letting cameras into uh, a professional sports team in the way that Movistar have done is opening themselves up to um, repeated criticism of the same points and and probably gives um, perhaps a sort of you know a generalised impression of um, you know what it's like and I think they're to be commended really for um, opening themselves up to that scrutiny and, and letting people see inside the team and see what goes on and crucially as Unzue said you know you have to show some of the bad as well as the good otherwise you're just making a, a, a basically a sort of PR piece so yeah fair play to them and so it's okay to reveal so okay <laughs> to, re- to to leave the the wrappers of Norse stock cubes around and you know for people to <laughs> see that that the, the, the source has been doped by I, I can confirm there was no ingredients no, like that <laughs> There was no ingredient. There were no ingredients like that. Um, and in this week's 1101 cappuccino, Richard, you'll be excited to know that there's a gazpacho recipe coming oh, to, to wrap Some up cold, the welter. Cold soup. Um. <laughs> it's funny. It's funny you used a sauce metaphor because one of the complaints some people have, uh, and, and you, you would see why if you came to Spain and spent a week or two here and, and ordered off restaurant menus every night. One of the, one of the complaints is there isn't enough sauce. That, that you often get, you know, just a, a sort of slab of meat. Or a slab of breaded meat whereas in France everything has a sauce doesn't it Richard I'm sure there's a happy medium uh, somewhere um, yeah um, it, it feels to me like we're getting towards the end of the episode um, <laughs> can I can I make a, fi- well, a final point on Movistar that, that you know what it showed was a, a very human side to the team and I think that if Eric Mas were to win the race and you know he, he might be the, the likeliest candidate from Movistar I think um, I think a lot of neutral fans or people who watch the series uh, would would actually be pretty happy with that and celebrate that in a way that they wouldn't had they not been given this access, this insight inside the team. So mission accomplished. 
Just before you leave El Baraco, Daniel, I just wanted to ask whether there's any evidence of another son of El Baraco, Angel Arroyo. Because I think there's a connection. You were standing outside the anti-doping truck earlier. There's a connection between you being outside the anti-doping truck, El Baraco, and Movistar. Because way back in 1982, Movistar was known as Reynolds. It was the same team. It was, in fact, their third year as a pro team. And Angel Arroyo, to all intents and purposes, won the welter, didn't he? He crossed the line in Madrid as the winner of the race and then a few days later it turned out that he had tested positive after one of the stages in the final week for a stimulant and was given a 10 minute penalty which dropped him down from first place to 13th and so Marino Lajareta won the welter without actually standing in uh, on the top step on the final podium Arroyo rode for the Reynolds team and that would have been their first Grand Tour victory and I think you may correct me here, I'm not sure, but I think they had to wait another six years before Pedro Delgado won the Tour de France for the team. And, and even even that Grand Tour was slightly overshadowed by a, a sort of doping scandal, wasn't there? The Probenicid scandal. But uh, there we are. I thought I'd tie up he was El Baraco and, and Reynolds, Movistar, and your the fact you're outside the anti-doping truck. He was apparently in the vicinity to... Day and right on cue, actually, he'd, keeping uh, away, he'd, be, just he'd be keeping away from the anti-doping trunk, truck, I would <laughs> <Yes>. have thought. <laughs> right, right on cue, Rafael Mike has emerged from the from the anti-doping truck. I don't know whether you can hear, there's a little round of applause in the background. Quick word for the cycling podcast, Rafa. <laughs> Charles, very final thing for me. Today we went past the um, one of the one of the wineries that features in our ah. um, Divine Cellars Vuelta a España uh, selection. The, uh, the makers of the uh, Vino de Montaña Cadalso. Um, that was just a, on the edge of the Sierra de Gredos, which was the mountain range the race went through today. That case, the, the cycling podcast selection, Vuelta Espana selection, is still available from Divine Sellers. D, letter D, vinesellers.com. Great. Well, listen, safe transfer, Daniel. Uh, a reminder that if you have a question for our press conference, please email us, contact at thecyclingpodcast.com with an audio file of your question, if you can. See you tomorrow, Rich. In which region? Which? Um, oh, uh, well, not not the Basque country, is it? Nearly the Basque country, Very, but not Right quite. on the border. Right on the border. Is it... Um, I could cheat here. Um, I think you're going to get this right. It's, sh- shall, I, shall I tell you? Yeah. It's Cantabria. Yeah. I was going to say that when I... Yeah. <laughs> I, I, did, I did. Yeah. I knew, I'll, I knew, I'll see I knew you. that. See you in Cantabria, I'll see you there. Daniel. I'll see you there. Just make sure you get a GPS with your high <laughs> Don't okay. worry. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, okay. Daniel. Safe travels. Bye-bye. Thanks, Lionel. Thank you. Yeah, have a good week. A good Thanks final week out there in Spain. Uh, I'll, I'll phone in the tale of the Etapa each day. Okay. For you. Cheers, Lionel. Cheers. Cheers. Yeah, have a good week. Que nos vamos de...